The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So, good evening, good evening. And before we start, I want you to take a moment. Is this loud enough? It's okay? Is it loud enough? Take just a moment to just feel how still it is in here. Just how sweet, still, warm. I can feel the moisture on my skin. My body tries to get rid of excess heat. But just savor for a moment the stillness. Just just that. And then we can begin. So... <clears throat> So, I'm going to start by reading a poem, because it's how it's, it's, it inspired me. So, here we go. This is by uh, Dorian Lowe, L-A-U-X, and it's Dust. Someone spoke to me last night, told me the truth, just a few words, but I recognized it. I knew I should make myself get up, write it down, but it was late. And I was exhausted from working, all day in the garden, moving rocks. Now I remember only the flavor. Not like food, sweet or sharp. More like a fine powder, like dust. And I wasn't elated or frightened, but simply wrapped, aware That's how it is sometimes. God comes to your window, all bright light and black wings, and you're just too tired to open it. Just too tired to open it. What I'd like to talk about tonight is the dust of practice. Sometimes practice is just dusty. Sometimes our practice gathers dust. Sometimes we feel buried. (laughs) Sometimes we just wonder, why am I doing this? So I want to talk about that. I particularly want to address the fear that nothing is happening. That we're not up to the task. That we misunderstand the task of practice. And we see it as a task. So, so what, I want to, what I want to talk about is kind of the attitude that we have toward practice and how we can support it and what does it mean? How do we establish our practice? What are the elements of the practice? How do we... Do we think of it? How do we think of it? Do we think of it as a process? Or is it more like... Um, a list of things that have to be checked off. Okay, got that. Yep, got that. Are we measuring it? Are we, how are we assessing practice? So this is kind of what's up for me. Is there ease in your practice? Or does it feel like you have to make yourself do it? You know, that little extra effort. Not that I'm speaking against effort. Effort is very important. 
But sometimes it becomes all about effort. It becomes all about what we have to do. It becomes all about the the struggle of the process instead of just that, just the process of practice. So I was inspired uh, to talk about this because um, my my smartphone was connected up to my car radio, and it was shuffling through the things on my music app, and it hit upon a talk that Gil Fransdell gave that I had liked. He gave this talk, oh, in January of 2013, and uh, it took me a while to find it today, but <laughs> that's when it was. And uh, I had kept it on my phone because something about it at that time struck me. And I thought, someday I'm going to want to hear this again. So it came on the radio in between, you know, whatever jazz station was playing. (laughs) Boom, I'm getting a talk. And it hit me again how really relevant it was to just this practice, just this practice. So what you talked about was the three characteristics. So I think everybody in this room is familiar with the three characteristics. You know, in Buddhist circles, we talk about these all the time. Impermanence, suffering, the existence of suffering, and not-self. But the talk was not really about the three characteristics. It's really about how do we provide the basis for discovering the three characteristics. What's the context for this in our lives? How do we use practice to create a follow ground for insight? What, what is that about? So, so uh, a lot of what I'm going to talk about tonight I borrowed from this talk. <clears throat> so I'm going to give that uh, some due. But I want to talk about the not-so-obvious part of practice that has to do with just how we're feeling about it. You know, when there, there are kind of there are different ways of practice. There's there's the practice of mindfulness, meditation, and mindfulness. There's the practice of concentration and the practice of insight. And sometimes, for me, my practice has been just mindfulness, just mindfulness. Pay attention to just just the raw experience. Sometimes I'm more interested in what am I learning. Sometimes I'm more interested in how is it shifting for me. So it's useful to kind of be aware of the fact that we can get in a rut because it's not in balance anymore. And we're sort of running down this path. I'm going to just be mindful. And mindfulness is my practice. I'm going to just be mindful. And and it becomes rigid and brittle and not enlivening. Or perhaps we're so focused on concentration, I'm going to just get focused, I'm going to bring up my skills in concentration, and I'm going to become very, very concentrated. And you can do that, and it gets a little dry. It gets dry because we forget why we're getting concentrated in the first place. What is it that this allows us to do? What is it that gives rise to impermanence? How do we notice impermanence? You know, teachers talk about it all the time. And so one of the things that, that Gil talked about in his talk that really spoke to me was that the gradual unfolding of wisdom happens 
when we look at the three characteristics and we look at the complements to the three characteristics and how that balance allows us to see things as they really are. So what I mean by that is if we think about impermanence, we have an idea about what impermanence is. Things are changing all the time. Nothing is the same. And what gives us the strength to be with impermanence is, in fact, stability. Stability, constancy, the ability to stay put, to be still. It isn't trying to make something permanent, but the ability to see impermanence, to truly discover impermanence, depends on the ability to be still. It's rather like um, when, uh, when, when we're trying to develop any kind of skill. We'll try this, and then we'll try that, and then we'll try this other thing, and then we'll... You know, pretty soon we're running around in all kinds of circles, and we're not really developing a skill because we're not staying with one thing long enough to get good at it. <laughs> you know? I'm, okay, I'm... Okay, so it didn't work to become a potter, so I think instead I'm going to write poetry. These are very different skills. And if we're constantly dabbling, the likelihood of our becoming still enough to even find out whether we like them (laughs) is, is minimal. So it becomes very important for us to to think about what our experience is around the three characteristics and how are we how are we meeting them what's the ground with which we're meeting them you know we will say something like okay i know the three characteristics of existence impermanence suffering not self and we say it kind of like a mantra right you know i've given talks on three characteristics you've heard endless talks on the three characteristics but what's really true is the transformative insight into the three characteristics doesn't come because of what you've heard, but because of what you experience. It is the unfolding, the realization of these characteristics in your life that makes a difference. It was certainly true for me. So in order for us to see this, that we need to cultivate the complements to the characteristics. We need to be able to say, okay, in the case of impermanence, I can be constant. I can have a, I'll I'll show up for my practice. I see the value in stability. If my practice is chaotic, I'm not going to notice anything. A lot of our practice has to do with getting the mind out of the way of our experience. But we have very busy minds, very busy minds. So grasping the experience is very different than the concept of the experience that we create through the activity of our minds. So when we hear all things are impermanent, how do you react to that? What does that mean for you? Impermanent? 
I need to be able to walk out of here and know that I can get in my car. That's going to be very useful for me. To, to just say all things are impermanent is actually not very insightful. It doesn't mean anything in your life if you just say, oh yeah, things come and go. Until it means something in your life. Saying that things are impermanent can be frightening, actually. Dreary. Uncertainty. How, how good are you with uncertainty? If you really ado- adopted impermanence as a way of living, and you allowed yourself to be really full of uncertainty, where does that leave you? I remember, uh, in particular, a particular experience I had around impermanence. I was on retreat, and I was fairly still. I have to say that's pretty important, that stillness. And I had a teacher who... uh, during the 15-minute the interview, said, no, I want you to tell me only about your experience. I don't want to hear any concepts. I don't want to know about your experience. I want to know your experience. What do you feel right now? So ask yourself, what is your experience right now? What are you experiencing? So, I, you know, I said, uh, confusion. She said, oh, no, no, that's a concept. Well, um, you know, and I had this list of things that I was going to tell her about. And each time I had to realize that what was happening is I was thinking about my experience. And it was the thinking that was happening. And it wasn't until I got to the point where I was only able to say vibration. That was the only thing I could truly identify as not conceptual, but just happening. I could feel vibration. And suddenly, I understood that that feeling, that moving back and forth, was the uncertainty, that my experience was directly that. It was a true experience of impermanence. Now, having described this to you, you can go off and try to have the same experience, but it won't have the same effect because this was just what happened for me. It was what happened in that moment, that experience of, oh, oh, I get it. That's when you know you have insight. It isn't when you can explain it to someone else. It isn't when you can explain it to yourself. It's when you suddenly discover, oh, that's what it means. That can only happen when the mind is not too agitated. It can only happen when the mind is not running off in stories or absorbed in aversion or what I want or how I'd like this to be different. There has to be some stability. There has to be stillness. There has to be a sense of constancy. I'm here. I'm here. I'm here for this to happen.
So another thing that happens when we're when we really notice things are changing all the time and there's there's kind of a spark. It's here, it's gone, it's here, it's gone, it's here, it's gone. In addition to a, a feeling of, oh my God, what's happening? It's quite possible that we can become disoriented, confused, uncertain. What am I doing? This doesn't feel good. And after that experience, it was months before I was able to finally say, oh, this is solid. It didn't stop being solid. I need more material in my life. Ah, this is a body. It's here. It hasn't disappeared. There is a balance between impermanence and stability and constancy that needs to be maintained so that we see what's happening and we don't become lost. So rather than thinking about it, well, in order to see this, I need to do so-and-so, it's useful to just see this stability as a kind of settling in. I'm settling in for the long haul. I'm just here. I'm just here. And there's no particular way that it has to be. You know, I described one experience to you, but there have been many experiences. That was one experience. And I am still learning about impermanence. And I'm still saying, ah, oh, of course. What we want is to be able to be in a position to say, ah, of course. Of course. This requires regularity of practice, maintaining a certain amount of constancy, a commitment to keep practicing, showing up, even when it's dusty. Okay, I'm here again. There is also the stability that comes from uh, ethical life. You know, if we're constantly having to lie about something that's happening in our lives, or we're constantly scraping around behind and sort of cheating, and that kind of agitation is really hard, hard to maintain. You know, when you've got a secret, maybe somebody has sworn you to secrecy about something and you can see it's hurting someone else, and you have this dilemma, what do I do about this? How do I hold this? then you, you can feel the stress of that, oh, it doesn't feel right, it just doesn't feel right. How do you let go of that, doesn't, that situation that is created by the minds convincing you that something has to happen, that is antithetical to what you know in your heart? How do you get in touch with that? So, one of the mantras I had for myself had to do with uh, doing metta practice and the desire for myself to be open-hearted. And after I did this for a few years, I asked myself how I would know if I was open-hearted. How do you know when your heart is open? 
Do you notice that? This kind of leads us into the second part, the second complementary feature that goes along with the antidote to suffering, which is a sense of well-being, well-being, cultivating well-being. One of the things we did before we started tonight was just notice the stillness in the room, which I called sweet, because that's how it felt to me, was sweet. Just, ah, nowhere to be, nothing to do, no need to run anywhere, no need to do anything, just for that moment, ah. How often do you do that in the course of a day? How often do you notice Ah, to cultivate well-being, one needs to notice well-being. One needs to promote it in one's life. One needs to celebrate a sense of, ah, a sense of, this feels right. This feels, oh. It doesn't mean the world is perfect. It doesn't mean you're perfect I'm certainly not perfect, but I do have moments when I'm able to just say, oh, things are okay, even on a hard day. If I can stop thinking about how to solve all the problems and just say, for right here, this moment, that breath was great. That one, that one, hmm. That's part of cultivating well-being. The the slipping into, ah, hmm. Not congratulating oneself for one's ethical behavior, but noticing one's ethical behavior, you know. So I'll I'll give you an, uh, it might not be a good example, but this afternoon I I read a headline that uh, there was... uh, the westbound traffic on the Bay Bridge was stopped. Can you imagine? This was 4.30 in the afternoon, so this is commute time, and they stopped the westbound traffic on the Bay Bridge for a, quote, police action. So what's your first thought? My first thought was, oh, those poor people. Oh, that's not bad. That's a pretty compassionate response. Okay. You know, huh, chalk that one up. The next one, the next thought, it was a police action. Oh, something bad is happening. Oh, everything seems to be so bad. And And then I remember, okay, that exists too. Can I be okay that that exists too? Yep, okay, that exists too. Something bad has happened. Something I wished had not happened. But along with that was this sense I had of compassion toward the people who were stuck in it. And I was able to say, that was a place of relaxation. It wasn't a place of congratulation. It was a place of relaxation. And that's part of settling in. That's part of cultivating well-being, that sense of, okay, 
It's okay. One of the reasons that one of those side effects of meditating is in fact that we can experience delight and contentment. Now, when, when meditation becomes too much of a task, that's really missing, you know? If, if you don't feel any joy and delight in your meditation, why are you doing it? The thing is, we sometimes forget to notice it. We forget to see it. We forget to experience it. Or we're so busy looking for it that the mind is con- creating how we're going to do it and is remaining agitated. And guess what? It just doesn't happen. Whereas being able to appreciate a moment of stillness is already a place of delight. Already. Being able to notice when you're agitated that you notice agitation can be a source of delight. I'm agitated. I noticed it. Hey. (laughs) It helps us be able to stay with that agitation and not get lost in wishing it was different. It's so easy to get lost in wishing it was different, better, I was better, I was more accomplished. One of the most beautiful experiences I had in meditation was uh, a feeling of great contentment. It was a highlight of my life. I was very still. I'd been on on retreat for some time. And as I was sitting there, I felt rapture, happiness, but I also felt I didn't need anything. I didn't want anything. I didn't want it to stay. I didn't want it to go. I didn't want the temperature to be different. I didn't want my legs to not hurt. I didn't want anything. And that feeling of not wanting was amazing. The mind is full of wants. It always wants. Wants this, wants that, wants something else, wants to figure it out. The letting go of wanting isn't so much, uh, I shouldn't say that. It can be about letting go of desires. But being open to just not wanting, just not wanting, however briefly, is such a relief. It's, It's beautiful. When I finally came out of that whole experience of contentment. All I wanted was for everyone in the world to experience that sometime in their lives. That's what I wanted. (laughs) It was so delightful. The not wanting anything was so exquisitely freeing, so relaxing, so delightful. And I didn't know what it felt like before that. 
I didn't know what it felt like to not want. Really. This is part of this evolving part of practice that, you know, I, I felt it this way, and then I felt it that way, and then I felt it that way. Really not wanting anything. Wow. And now I remind myself not to want it back. (laughs) Not to want it, not to, that the whole experience is about just this. Just this. It doesn't have to be different than that. But cultivating the ability to see well-being is very important as a way of Shifting the energy around suffering that we see as a way of of changing our attitude about what we notice when we notice, ah, this is tense, this is difficult, there's anger here, there's ill will here, there's, oh, how can I still be facing this same issue for me? What if it doesn't matter? What if it doesn't matter? Can you let go of judgment about yourself long enough to just be in this moment so that the next moment you're more conducive to noticing that your heart is open. Oh, this is what it feels like. Oh. Now you're not worrying about, am I vulnerable? Do I ha- how can I make this happen again? How can this be? We're just noticing the well-being that we experience. Oh. And once you know that you're capable of that, you can't unknow it. Isn't that wonderful? (laughs) Once you know it, you can't unknow it. You can forget it. You can pretend it's not happening. We go about our lives. We run around and make this happen and that happen. And we, we drive from here to there. But somewhere in your heart, you know what you are capable of. And how you can experience that. And recalling that is part of cultivating well-being. Is part of creating the ground for further insight. If you don't notice it, you, you can't see it. You can't see it. Another way of cultivating well-being is is to practice generosity. It feels good to do something for someone. It feels good. Allow someone to do something for you. That feels good. It's a sense of, oh, giving someone else the joy of being able to be generous. That took a long time for me to figure out. The joy of allowing someone else to be generous. To give up wanting to be the source of all good things. <laughs> yeah. I, 
I'm never going to make it as God. I just don't fit. I just don't fit the bio. It doesn't happen. We have to, you know, I think people worry about uh, selfishness when it comes to this sense of well-being. You know, it feels selfish to wish good things for yourself. But in fact, it is the way of opening us up to other people that helps other people. This allowing this, this goodness to occur. When was the last time you contemplated your own inherent goodness? Ever? Why not? You don't have to believe anything about yourself. It isn't about creating a conceit. It is just recognizing, oh, I'm really working. I'm really making effort. I'm really here. I'm really with you. Oh, wow. And that sense of presence, of being here, is felt by the people you are here with. And then they are free to be here too. It isn't, it isn't you know, it's not automatic. But you're giving other people the opportunity to show up too. It's a gift. It's a gift. So in our meditation practice, we also cultivate this sense of well-being. We do this through metta, metta for ourselves and for others. One of the things I do is um, remind myself when I'm having trouble with someone, just like me, he just wants to be happy. And that kind of opens up for me. That's, that is a way for me of co- com- of cultivating well-being for me because my heart softens and I'm much happier with a soft heart than I am with a hard one. And I do know when I can feel either of them. And, and just that simple, just like me, he just wants to be happy, will do that for me. Perhaps the highest irony when you're talking about balancing the characteristics with their complement is to talk about non-self and the development of confidence. Because it turns out that you need to develop a good sense of yourself in order to understand not-self. And what I mean by that is a lot of what we consider self is conceptual. You know, I'm like this. But I can tell you, almost any characteristic that I can tell you about me, I can give you a contrary example, whatever it is. You name it, I can give you a contrary example to what is my overall tendency. (laughs) So, like most people think that I'm pretty extroverted, but I'm actually... I feel quite introverted. <laughs> it takes me a while to warm up to people, to sort of find a way, and you know. But you know, overall, 
I don't have any trouble with public speaking, therefore I must be an extrovert, right? (laughs) All of these things are ideas about how we are. And the whole idea of not-self is being free to show up just as you are in this moment, as opposed to what you want people to think about you, what you think about you, the image that you're trying to project, the, the, the way that you're trying to protect yourself. These are all ways that we have of creating a self which doesn't exist. They're mostly ideas about it. In order to cultivate non-self, we have to cultivate confidence. That I can just show up here. Here I am in this moment. I can just show up. And it's going to be this. It's going to be okay. You know, this is, this is a characteristic that people develop as they mature. The confidence of being able to walk in a room and not worrying about, you know, tripping over your feet and falling on your face. And, you know, I, I watch my, my granddaughter, who uh, is a great example for all kinds of things Buddhist. She's now uh, 19 months old. And I just spent a week with her. And during that week, she learned several things. One of them was that she could go up and down stairs without crawling. She, by, just by stepping, she could go up and down stairs without holding onto someone's hand. She was so excited by this. She kept doing it over and over and over and over and over and over. (laughs) And we adults had to celebrate with her and urge her to onward (laughs) because we had an agenda. She had no agenda. Just the joy of being able to go up and down those stairs. How great this was. And it was so delightful to watch her. And so in the midst of, you know, we really have to go, I reminded myself that it actually was quite delightful to watch her do that. Really. Develop the confidence to be able to step up and step down. What a big deal it was for her. And that's what we do when we're practicing. Whatever it is we're practicing. is we're developing the confidence that comes from when I do this, it's going to be okay. I'm not going to lose my way. It may feel like I'm losing my way, but I've been there before. This is a part of maturing that is an important part of practice also. Developing integrity and honesty in our practice is a way of creating confidence, strength, courage, We need these to practice. We need these. They're qualities. They're not defining characteristics. You don't have to be a hero to develop courage. You just have to say, ah, I can do this. I can do this. I can can look at this. When the mind is very still, we're more able to see the way that we are creating self that is not useful for us. We can see, oh, 
look at this image I'm creating for myself, this ideal of how I should be, how I am. And my insistence that this is how I am is limiting me. It's, it is the opposite of freedom. Anytime you find yourself saying, well, this is the way I am, question yourself. Ask yourself if it's always true. Don't argue. Don't argue with yourself. Just say, hmm. So I recently, actually two days ago, uh, purged my closets. I went in and I got rid of a lot of stuff. Really, a lot of stuff. Some of it was 30, 40 years. I've been hauling it around. 30 or 40 years. I had it all piled up. And, and, and in the beginning, it was, it was hard. I was about two hours into it, and I had to call somebody to get encouragement. <laughs> I'm freaking. I'm freaking. This is really scary. <laughs> Why? Because attached to everything I was picking up and putting in the, I'm getting rid of this pile, was a memory, an image, something something I was attached to that somehow had something to say about who I was, who I am. Now, we are all the products of all of our experiences in life. But we don't have to hold on to them. We don't have to stay attached to them. So I got a lot of new insights into how sticky things are and what the nature of that stickiness was that it had to do with my self-image, that it had to do with how I saw myself, how I wanted people to see me, memories I wanted to hold on to. Oh, I remember when... I have this crazy shirt that I bought for $25 in Paris that I have had since um, 1979. Whoops. That makes it about 50 years old, right? No, 40. Maybe only 40 years old. Really? <laughs> you, you're still holding on to this shirt? It's got holes in it. <laughs> but I remembered the day I found it in this little shop in Paris. And I thought, my goodness, how can you hold on to something for such a silly reason that it reminds you of when you were a certain way? How real is this? And to watch how sticky that that shirt was for me. Oh, oh, oh. And even after I bagged everything up and had all this stuff, put it in my car, drove it off to give it away, I'm still thinking, oh, I'm glad I did that. I would be going through that stuff again today. (laughs) I would be pulling stuff out of there, you know. Watching that stickiness. Oh. How is that, that that I am so attached to seeing myself some way? It was really 
uh, enlightening. It was enlightening. Enlightening. <laughs> Got rid of a lot of stuff. This is the, the, the mind is very good at establishing meaning, importance to everything. And that's what was going on. All that stuff that I was saving for who knows what reason had something to do with the mind choosing meaning. But it was all concepts. There was nothing direct about it. It was all concepts. It was just ideas. Not real. Not real. If you don't use concepts to describe who you are, who are you? If you don't use concepts to describe who you are, who are you? If you're not listing characteristics, if you're not saying, you know, I'm five foot three, I weigh this, I'm this old, I do these things, who are you? You surely exist. You are here in this room. But who are you? This can be frightening or it can be freeing. What I'm recommending is that you cultivate the willingness to develop confidence that you are here just as you are and that is good. Cultivate the well-being of just being here just this way. Cultivate the stability that is realized realized in just this, just this, over and over. The willingness to show up for just what is your direct experience and not the idea of your experience. Not how you think it should be, how you'd like it to be, but just as it is. Develop the knowledge, the realization, and the insight that arises from a sense of stability, well-being, strength. This this is how we come to the place where the dust is not accumulating. When the Buddha first gave his first talk after his enlightenment, he gave the talk on the Four Noble Truths to his former ascetic partners in practice because they only had a little dust in their eyes. Don't be afraid of dust. Be ready. Cultivate what it takes to be ready so that when it comes, when the bright thing comes to the window with its dark wings, you're not too tired to open the window. It will be open like your heart. 
those are my thoughts. Thank you. Uh, do you have any observations? Feel free to show up. <laughs> it won't hurt. Roy, could you read that poem again? Yes, I will read that poem again. So this is by Dorian Lowe. Dust. Someone spoke to me last night, told me the truth. Just a few words, but I recognized it. I knew I should make myself get up, write it down, but it was late. And I was exhausted from working all day in the garden, moving rocks. Now I remember only the flavor, not like food, sweet or sharp. More like a fine powder, like dust. And I wasn't elated or frightened, but simply wrapped, aware. That's how it is sometimes. God comes to your window, all bright light and black wings, and you're just too tired to open it. So, may you never be weary of practice. And when you become weary of practice, know that this too will pass, because all things are impermanent. And suffering is not the only thing present. And you don't need to be anything that you are not. Thank you. Good night.